Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our Vancouver Eastside Vineyard uh, service for Sunday, October the 4th, 2020. This is the Feast of St. Francis Day, as well as the 18th Sunday after Pentecost in ordinary time. And appropriately, St. Francis was the patron of animals, patron saint of animals, and also nature. So appropriately, we're continuing our teaching series today entitled A Sacred Ecology. And today, I want to talk about the great unraveling. The great unraveling. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, have you ever had a garment or a blanket in your hand that was knitted together like this one? And you saw a loose thread hanging from it and you were tempted to pull on the thread and somebody said, maybe your mom or somebody said, don't pull on that because if you do, the whole thing is going to fall apart. Or maybe you didn't have somebody tell you that and you found out the hard way. Well, some garments are made in such a way that when you pull one thread out, they're so interconnected that the whole thing comes apart when you just unravel one thread. And essentially, we've been talking about how God has made creation that way. Creation is interconnected. When, you, when one thread comes apart, everything comes apart. Because we are interconnected with God, with one another as we've been learning. And we're interconnected with creation. And last but not least, ourselves uh, is, is part of that great interconnection. And so our reading today talks about a great unraveling that occurred. And we, many of us are familiar with the story from Genesis 3 as the story of the fall of humanity. And uh, I, often we think about it in terms of somebody breaking a rule, but I would like to approach it from an ecological perspective today. From this perspective of being interconnected in that somebody pulled on a loose thread and everything unraveled. Now, as we've been going through the, the story of creation from Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we've been looking at different creation myths that were added to the Genesis account. And by myth, I don't mean they're untrue. because They're conveying truth, but they're, they're done in a way that portrays the truth that, that they're trying to convey. And last week we looked at how, last time we looked at how God uh, created humanity at the center of creation and we have this picture of extravagant abundance we have this picture of no scarcity no lack that there's there's abundance and enough for all of them and there's there it's all available for humanity's enjoyment and uh, with all of this abundance there was only one prohibition and that prohibition was right at the center of, of the garden, this massive garden, the size of a small country. That's a picture of creation. And the prohibition was this one tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And uh, what was meant by that? Well, often when we hear the word knowledge, we think of um, a Western concept of knowledge, which is cerebral and intellectual, or the Greek concept. But the Hebrew concept of knowledge was more, far broader than that. It was a, a concept of, um, a, 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 of experience, experiential knowledge. So what God was saying is that, that until they ate this tree, 
They would only experience good. But when they partook of that tree, they would encounter evil as well. So what was the difference between this tree and all the other trees that they were able to enjoy in the garden? Well, essentially nothing. I think if you'd have tasted the, the tree, it would have, the fruit, it would have tasted good. I don't think it was poisonous fruit, as some may say. I don't think that at all. I think that the only difference between this tree and every other tree was the prohibition. Don't eat it. That was all. So the question is, why? Why was there a prohibition in the middle of that garden? And I believe if I could sum it up this way, it was that God gave humanity the choice to love or to not love. And what do I mean by that? Well, to illustrate, we're all, we've, we've been very familiar, maybe this emphasizes the fact that we've been learning through the Me Too movement and the Time's Up movement of the last few years, that true love and relationship requires consent, not just on a sexual basis, but on any level, true relationship and love requires mutual consent. And God wanted our consent. God made God's self vulnerable to humanity by expressing to us that God needed our consent for a relationship. And when you don't have consent, you have at best an arranged marriage or at worst slavery and, and uh, coercion and abuse. So our text today is, is, the, is a hinge point in our story. It's a time when humanity chose not to love. And it didn't just happen, it happens all the time. And we pulled on the thread and the whole thing became unraveled. And our relationship with God was broken because we believed the lie of the tempter who came in the form of a talking snake and convinced them that God wasn't good and couldn't be trusted. And because there was no trust, consent was withdrawn and the string was pulled. And our relationship with the Creator was broken and we sought to usurp the Creator's place as God's herself to dominate creation. But our relationship with ourselves was broken because we became naked and ashamed or we knew it and we tried to hide and we created false selves to project to ourselves, to God and to others so that our real self was not known. Our relationship with each other was broken Blame began to take place. Adam blamed God and he blamed Eve and, and, and misogyny came and patriarchy and sexism. Broken relationship between the sexes. But it extended to broken relationship between brothers as in the very next chapter, Cain murders his brother Abel. And it proceeds to become violent, the world full of classism and racism and colonialism, colonizing each other's bodies, raping each other's bodies and lands that continues to this day. And last but not least, our relationship with creation was ruptured. Rather than partnering with the Creator to lovingly serve creation, we tried to take the place of the Creator in, in dominating and exploiting and I wonder in our text today, when God said that the ground was cursed, rather than God being ticked off because a rule was broken, it was rather a prediction 
What if God was predicting that because of their relationships that were broken, because of the web that came undone, what if God was predicting things like desertification and the erosion of soil like we're seeing in Africa with the encroachment of the desert? What if God was predicting climate change and global warming through the emissions of greenhouse gases and the poisoning of the water and the pollution of the air? What if God was predicting burning forests, the loss of biodiversity and millions of species through our injustice and our broken relationships with each other? Look at it right in scripture, we see the environmental impact of our relationships with each other. When God confronted Cain for his murder of Abel, he said, Cain, your brother Abel's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And because of that, the ground is not going to produce crops for you anymore. And he became a city dweller, became an urbanite because of the broken relationship with creation. And we read a little bit later, the greatest environmental disaster that we know of in history was the flood. And God is clear that the wickedness that caused that is specifically violence. Violence on the face of the earth. And so it continues today, this environmental impact. By their first birthday, a North American child will be responsible for more carbon emissions than a Tanzanian will generate through their whole lifetime. And yet Africa bears the brunt of our consumption and consumerism and exploitation in the West and in the Northern Hemisphere. We're all connected, good and bad. Everything bad and good is bound together. We share the air, the water, the soil, and we even share the smoke of forest fires that still residually exist over our city from California, Oregon, and Washington. So this doesn't sound like very good news. Is there good news at all? Is there a way home? Once something is unraveled, can it be raveled again? There is, that is actually a word, by the way. I looked it up. And I want to say that God is the great raveler. To put it another way, if an egg is scrambled, can it be unscrambled again? Can Humpty Dumpty be put back together again? You know, I'm not a very good handy person, and I learned the hard way a long time ago that it's a lot easier to take something apart than to put it back together again. But I want to say that God is the great putting back together person. God loves to restore God is the great recreator. But here's the catch. God has chosen not to do this without our consent, without our very unequal partnership. But nevertheless, God has made God's self vulnerable to us to partner together. And already right in the middle of this horrible disaster and unraveling that we read about in Genesis chapter 3, there's hope. There's a glimmer of hope when the creator says to the serpent that uh, the serpent was, of course, a symbol of evil in our world. And the creator said to the serpent that there would be enmity between you, the serpent, 
and the offspring of the woman. And the offspring of the woman will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Well, who was that offspring of the woman? Well, first of all, it's us. It's humanity. God's promise is that in partnership with humanity, God will eradicate evil. God will ravel things together, put it back together again. That's God's promise. And of course, this was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, whose self-designation, more than any other, was the human one, or the Son of Man, as we commonly know it in the Gospels. But really, it meant the human one. And he came as the light of the world, because if it all unraveled because we chose not to love, then the raveling comes by choosing to love again. And that's what Jesus, the light of the world, came to teach and came to model through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. He showed us that love is the way back. But it's not some syrupy, sentimental love. It's costly love. It's self-giving love. It's love for the other, for those who are different, for the Samaritan, the outcast, the marginalized. It's love for the Romans, for the Gentiles, for our enemies. And yet it's not a simple formula. It requires wisdom and discernment and a partnership with God because what does loving your enemy look like when you have a bully? in your school, kids' school? What does loving, loving others look like when sometimes you do that at the expense of self-care and sustainability? So loving yourself, Jesus implied by loving your neighbor as yourself, it's intertwined. How do we keep boundaries? How do we not burn ourselves out? Jesus came to restore to us the way of love. Now, when I was... Uh, I want to show you a picture here today uh, because it starts by returning to the source of love. It's complex, but it's, but it's simple in its first steps. By returning to the source of love. And uh, I don't know if you can see this picture very well, but uh, this uh, is a picture of me 45 years ago. And I was speaking to my high school valedictorian. I was speaking at my high school graduation with a thousand people jammed into a gymnasium in my hometown in northern Alberta. And I quoted, it was, a, it was not a long message, but during the message, I quoted the famous French mathematician and philosopher Blaise Pascal, who said that within the heart of every human being, there is a God-shaped vacuum that cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. You see, there's a part of you and I that only God can fill. And even though we have all of creation, when God gave that prohibition in the garden, God said, there's a part in you that only I can fill. And you shall Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's the source. That's why Jesus referred to himself as the bread of life. 
We know we can only live without food for a few weeks. And then he called himself the living water. We can only live without water for a few days. And much more than food and water, we're absolutely dependent on Jesus to bring us love, to bring us life, and to show us how to love again. So how do we do this? How do we come to Jesus? Well, he said, this is your vocation. This is your calling. When the the Jews said to him, well, how can we do God's work? He said, this is God's work. Believe on the one God has sent. And that's really challenged me this week. I thought, my vocation is to believe. Midst all the cynicism, the despair, the negativism, the gloom and doom, without being shallow and superficial, without denying reality, to believe that God is still good, that God is still at work, and that God is for us, and that he hasn't given up on this planet, and he's, he's tenaciously at work to make everything right. So the second thing I want to hold up for you today is something that we're very familiar with and we're going to be partaking about of in a few minutes, the bread and the cup. And I can't think of anything that is a more tangible example of our interdependency. For first of all, this bread and this cup reminds us of our absolute dependence on God for our very next breath. Our breath is in God's hand. And we begin to breathe the moment we're born and the moment we stop breathing, we die. And so this is a reminder of our interdependence on God. Secondly, it's a reminder of our interdependence with each other because Jesus talked about this being the body of Christ and Paul references that to our interconnectedness with each other. And even the blood, we use the term blood to talk about family, that we're of one blood, we're connected. And so it reminds us of our interdependence, even in this COVID isolation, social distancing time, we are vitally interdependent with each other. And with every person on earth, there's that interdependence. Thirdly, it reminds us of our interdependence with creation that this bread comes from the grain of the earth. It's a beautiful, rustic, multi-grain bread that grains from the earth produced. And it reminds us of our, that we came from the earth and we will return to the earth and that we are sustained by the earth, the air and the water. And this cup is a beautiful fruit of the vine from the northern part of Italy. And it reminds us of our our vital dependency on creation and with the earth. And finally, it reminds us that God's promise to us, that provision is made for complete connection and union with ourselves again because we ran away in shame. And this bread and this cup reminds us that provision has made and that God has restored us to our true selves and that that we are beloved children of God, sons and daughters of the living God. That's our true identity. So provision has been made. And so come, come to the table today. If you're joining us from other parts of the world or at other times, get some bread and a cup and have communion, hopefully with somebody that 
you're in the bubble with, that you can connect with. But with if not, maybe online. And uh, break bread together. Have the cup. Come to the table. All you who are weak. All you who are weary and brokenhearted. There's a great raveling happening. There's a great integrating and healing and restoring happening through what Jesus has done for us through his life, death, and resurrection. That love wins. Come, all you who have failed, you who are lost or lonely and without hope. There is a place for you at this abundant table. Jesus says, whosoever will may come. All that is needed, are you ready for this, is your consent. That's all. And when you do, you join with God in this incredible, unequal partnership of recreation. Amen.